Welcome back, everyone, to the George Sanders Show. We had a week off, but uh, we're back in the kitchen, ready to discuss some films. Good to see you, Sean. Hello, Mike. Uh, I'm getting over a cold, so if you hear, you know, sneezing and nose blowing, just disregard it. Uh, today, in tying with Alfonso Cuaron's new film, Gravity, which is uh, okay. <laughs> I think I'm the only person in the world that thinks it's Okay. I like that. I like that you you give it a solid like three stars. Like it's fine. As a, every other review is either this is the greatest thing in the history of cinema <laughs> or this is the worst thing in the history. I of know cinema. it's really weird. It's okay. Um, I like that. Let's, <laughs> let's do it in praise of mediocrity. That's right. Um, there are really good things about it, and there are some really terrible things about it. But anyway, I, mean, I of course have not seen it. Of course not. No. But you saw a lot of films in the last week, and we'll probably talk about that in a little bit later in the show. Yeah. The real theme of this show is uh, we're going to talk about both versions of uh, adaptations of Stanislaw Lem's novel Solaris. The first one uh, from Tarkovsky in 1972, and then the version by Steven Soderbergh uh, in 2002, starring George Clooney. Uh, Clooney will also be our person of the week, because uh, he's in Solaris, and he's also in Gravity. Uh, and we will also be discussing our uh, cinema central film, where a person sees dead people. Yeah. Because that happens in movies. Yes. It happens in both of these. <laughs> happens movies. in both of these movies. Multiple dead people are seen by multiple people. It happens in Gravity, too. Spoiler alert! Whoa. <laughs> uh, anywho. Mind blown. I know. Uh, well, let's listen to a clip from the original Solaris. Chalam. Chalam. What? Они приходят по ночам. А спать-то когда-нибудь нужно. Вот проблема. Человек потерял сон. Впрочем, прочти ты, я несколько возбужден. Я знаю, сеньор, только одно. Когда я... Когда я сплю, я не знаю ни страха, ни надежд, ни трудов, ни блаженства. Спасибо тому, кто изобрел сон. Эту единую для всех монету, эти единые весы, равняющие пастуха и короля, дуралей и мудреца. Одним только плох крепкий сон. Говорят, что ночью смахивает на смерть. Никогда еще, Санчо, ты не произносил такой изящной речи. So that was a clip from the original version of Solaris. The film is about a, a psychologist who travels to a space station um, because everybody's kind of gone space crazy, and he's there to figure out what's going on. Um, but shortly after he arrives, uh, a facsimile of his dead wife uh, appears, and uh, he goes space crazy. So it, it, it turns out that the planet, which is basically just this ocean, 
uh, cosmic ocean it turns out to be alive and is attempting to communicate or study or in some way interact with the, the three scientists on the space station by presenting images from their past and right. seeing how they react to them. Well, they're not just images, though. They're three-dimensional. Uh, right. Yeah. They're, they, are, they are beings composed of neutrinos, neutrinos and, not, and yes. not atoms. Exactly. They're In, unstable. Uh, yeah, there's... Uh, Tarkovsky was dissatisfied with this film because he felt it it uh, was too tied to the sci-fi genre because he had to have, like... Explanations. Yeah, a little, you know, faux-scientific explanations, like the people are composed of neutrinos. And... But the, even still, there's so little of that. Yeah. Like, I love how, like, the ray gun that the, the scientists develop to to dissolve the neutrino people is just called the Annihilator. Yeah. <laughs> they don't, you know, give any uh, reasonable explanation or how, of how it works or how space travel works or any of that nonsense. You don't need it's just, to. It's the Annihilator. Yeah. It will annihilate them. That, uh, you know, pretty much sums it up, you know. Yeah, uh, this is actually the second adaptation of, of Lem's novel. There was one in 1968 that oh, really? I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about, but, but Wikipedia mentions it. Oh, Wikipedia. The yeah. ones you trusted for a film set in San Francisco, huh? I, I <laughs> assume that they would not lie about the fact that there was a film that existed. I, I, don't, I don't believe it. Uh, well, let's treat this one as its own film here. Sure. Um, this is my first Tarkovsky Um You've seen, I take it, you've probably seen the big names. I've seen a couple others. I'm not, I'm not a, a huge Tarkovsky guy. He didn't have like a, a really extensive filmography. He died at a, 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 a tragically young age. But um, I've seen, I've seen this one. I've seen Andre Rublev, which is my favorite. I've also seen Stalker, which is another kind of sci-fi movie that is even less sci-fi. And I've seen Mirror, which is a really interesting movie in that it's, it's like almost entirely based on images from his own past. So like the only person who could possibly understand everything in the movie is Andre Tarkovsky. So you're, you're totally on the outside looking into it and it's still really kind of beautiful, but totally impenetrable. Sounds awesome. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's really cool. Sounds and like my kind of film. It's, it's a very challenging film to watch because a lot of the, a lot of the expectations that the Hollywood system sets up for us as an audience, like in terms of character identification and plot construction and, and the way that kind of narrative is is revealed out to us, uh, Tarkovsky just kind of ignores. He doesn't he doesn't really care about about that kind of stuff. So it it can make the watching his movies a kind of a, a daunting prospect because there's not you know, the kind of uh, hooks that we're used to seeing in films. Mm-hmm. Did you have any trouble like relating to the characters, figuring out what was going on? Like, obviously, it's a very slow-paced movie. He uses a lot of long takes with without a lot of dialogue. It's very you know carefully composed and and. I'd and say it took. I'd say it took. It took me a little while to get into it. Um, I, I don't. You know, I don't tend to really have problems with people um, not doing things the conventional way. Um, I did, you know, the opening 45 minutes takes place on Earth on this, like, farm, and that stuff, to me, went on a little too long. Um, I was reading the booklet later for the uh, recent criterion of this, you know, and uh, there's a, uh, a section written by Kara Kurosawa where he, he had gone to the set and stuff and for Solaris and stuff, and he argues that the opening section needs to be that long because once you get into space, then you truly feel that you're missing Earth. You know, you, you, you get accustomed to Earth and then it's gone. 
And I can see that argument, but that that section to me was the weakest part of the film. It really does feel slow and, you know, kind of tedious. Once it gets on the uh, space station, and it's still slowly paced, it's, you know, it, it's very deliberate, it takes its time, I was completely hooked. I mean, I thought, I think the second hour of this thing is just wonderful. I mean, I was completely absorbed in it, and I thought it was just, I thought it was beautiful and, and heartbreaking and wonderful. Yeah, it's 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 almost a three-hour movie, but it, it doesn't feel like there's like three hours of events that go on. Right. But... The Soderbergh movie felt longer to me. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll get into we'll get into the the Soderbergh and the differences, and 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 your kind of experience with the the first Earth section seeming to go on way too long was was my experience the first time I saw it a long time ago. This time it just kind of rushed by, and there's so much that gets that gets set up and and revealed in that first section. Like you you see his house, you see you see the lake, which are. Pivotal to the uh, end of the movie. Yeah, the pivotal to the end of the movie. You kind of tease out the hints of his relationship with his father and and his uh, his dead wife. Plus, you get all of the the kind of mystery around the planet. They watch like this film strip of this guy who, like early in the Earth's exploration of this planet, had a very strange encounter, and it's it's told very dryly. It's like a newsreel from uh, it would be like a like a congressional hearing from the 1950s, basically. Where C-SPAN. Like yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but it's a fascinating story, and, and it sets up all of, like, the mystery that that will be revealed once he actually gets to the planet. I got that. It just seemed like it, you know, then there's this the scene of that guy who had been on the earlier mission in the car driving. It's one of the most famous sequences in the, in the film, is, like, the... Uh, was it like five minutes, three minutes of, of basically just a car driving through Tokyo yeah. with uh, like jet airplane noises on the soundtrack mixed in with like the normal highway noises. And it's like a, a simulation of, of space travel. Yeah, it just, I'm just, like the sound design, I actually made a note that the sound design during the traffic scene was really great. I thought it, it, it worked well, but it just, it was part of, you know, this long, section that just didn't completely work for me. I think you're right. I think if I went back and watched this again in a year or two, I might be more generous to that section, knowing what comes later and all that stuff. Um, but I was, you know... Yeah, and, and that's part of it. It's like, you're like impatient to get to like the weird stuff on, on the planet. You're like, come on. Yeah. Let's, let's speed it up here. But once, once, once you know that, you can like see the... the it's not that nothing is happening. It's that what's happening is is like little bits and pieces of the of the later narrative. That once you when you once you know the whole narrative, you recognize that, and it becomes much more interesting. Yeah, and yeah. You know, similarly, like the the long takes, I remember it as being like really long pans and and just really slow paced. But in the you know five or ten years or however long it's been since I since I first saw Solaris, I'm much more used to uh, more kind of minimal, minimalist cinema, like movies that that do have really long takes uh, and very little dialogue, like Chiming Liang movies, stuff like that. Uh, did, and rewatching this, it actually struck me that it's actually kind of fast-paced. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't have a problem. I, I, I didn't feel like the pace was glacial or, or that it was... I, my patience was never tried for the second... You know, the, like the second hour, third hour of the film. Um, no, I thought it was great. I mean, there are long takes, but the long takes to me were really, uh, 
there was an energy to him that I really liked. Um, one thing that he does a couple of times in the movie is he does these circular takes where he's, there's like two or three people in a room and he'll circle from one to the other and not cut. And what he does in addition to doing that, which is very hypnotic as the camera's moving through, is that whoever's not in the frame at that moment will go to another part of the room. And so the camera will be panning and in your the back of your mind, you picture them where they you saw them last. But then as the camera keeps panning, they've moved to a different chair. And uh, it adds to that kind of, you know, they, disquiet they, that's going on. When, when they pop up, they pop up unexpectedly. And it, it creates this kind of sense of unease. But it also creates a sense that it's like an actual real world. Like there are things going on right. off screen that we maybe don't know about and don't understand. So I thought um, that stuff was really great. Yeah, I actually, I actually recalled that happening much more in the film than it actually does. I think there's only like maybe two, maybe three times in the, in the movie where he where he does that. I recall it as being a, a more integral part of the the visual style. But we should talk about what the what the film means, what it's actually trying to say, and what what kind of thematic issues it's attempting to explore. Because that's the uh, the most interesting thing to me, and it's also the thing that differentiates it most from the Soderbergh movie and we'll kind of leave, leave the Soderbergh aside for now and get into what you think the Tarkovsky is about. Well, you know, and going into this, I didn't know too much about it. Uh, intentionally. So I, I, you know, I, I knew of its stature, but other than that, I didn't know too much about it. Um, but it is, and Tarkovsky said it was his response film to 2001, which he thought was very clinical and cold and all those things people say about Kubrick and stuff. And even if, if you didn't know that, I think you could glean that from watching this movie. Like, it, it feels very much like a response to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, both movies are about, like, uh, humans making contact with an alien species and not really being able to understand them and not being able to communicate because they're aliens. Uh, the, the Kubrick... Is, is much more distant and much more cold and mechanical. Uh, Tarkovsky, I think, is, is attempting to more focus on like the, the interior lives of the scientists and, and how the, the process of, of exploration of and attempting to communicate affects them, especially given the way that the planet chooses to communicate, which is taking these, these, these people from their past and exposing them to them. And it's very specific about the people that it chooses. It chooses people that they feel guilty about. Right. So they're basically having, like, their biggest regret in life exposed to them, and then it's, the planet is, like, watching how they, they choose to respond to that. And I think that that guilt aspect of it is, is, is very much emphasized in the Tarkovsky, and it's not in the Soderbergh one. Um, really? I disagree. I disagree. I think it's bungled in the Soderbergh one, but it's def. I mean, are you kidding me? That guilt is hugely on display in the Soderbergh one. Let me say, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> the the guilt issue is is there in Soderbergh, but it's not dealt with in a mature, well, realistic fashion. Yeah, I mean. It's kind of. We'll, we'll get to the Soderbergh. We'll get away. to the Soderbergh. The Soderbergh. Whereas the the, the Tarkovsky is, is like a very real attempt to deal with guilt and about and it it feels more more human 
the way that that the the main character Chris Kelvin deals with the appearance of his dead wife and and his wife had killed herself ten years ago basically because he neglected her right. and he feels very bad about this but it's been ten years and he's gotten on with his life and then suddenly she's back and this terrifies him so the first thing he does is like panic and launch her into space and end up setting himself on fire right. Uh, and then she comes back, and he begins to kind of settle into the idea, but he's he's always very wary of her. Like, he's always understanding that she is not his wife. I don't necessarily agree. I mean, as it goes on, he really, you know, he starts defending her, he starts bringing her to all of his, you know, meetings with the other scientists, and I, I felt like he really did accept her. I, I don't think he ever accepts her as, as a human. I think he's torn. I think there's part of him that wants him to. And, and that's the the difference for me in the two movies. Like, I think that Kelvin is, is always conflicted in his relationship, in his relationship with the woman and with his, uh, with what he chooses to do. Like he, he's never quite sure if he's doing the right thing. Whereas like Clooney is 100% all the way every time. Well, yeah, I, no, I, I mean, I agree with you. Do you want to get into this over? <laughs> no, no, no. no. Um. Well, there's a line in this movie. Um, there are two lines, actually, in the movie that um, kind of struck me. But one of them is, um, don't turn a scientific problem into a common love story, yeah. which I think is great. And um, and that kind of sums up the, the two different movies. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have a quote, and remind me to, to mention this later from the Soderbergh one when I get to it, but there's a quote that kind of sums up the Soderbergh one for me as well. But, and that, that's kind of what I'm saying, is like, is like uh, Kelvin is not, you know, head over heels for this alien version of his wife. Right. Like, part of him is obviously attracted to her, part of him, like, you know, toys with the idea of living forever on this alien planet with right. his wife and, and expiating all of his past sins. Right. But there's always another part of him that says that this is not real, this is dumb, this is just like an alien, she's made out of neutrinos, right. you know, this is a problem for me to solve. And the, his ultimate goal is to communicate with the planet, like he is an explorer, and they're out there to try and make contact with this other species. Um, and so that's what, what leads to kind of like the final action of the film, is they choose to like send out his brainwaves to the planet in an attempt to create further communication with the planet. And then that ends up actually changing the surface of the planet. And that's something that's, that totally doesn't exist at all in the second movie. Right. Uh, well, there are a lot of things that don't exist in the second movie. Um, but just this whole like kind of spirit of, of scientific inquiry and, ex- and exploration is as important to Tarkovsky's film as the love story and, and the guilt around that. Yeah, this this movie this movie's much more engaged with its ideas and it actually has ideas to it. Uh, <laughs> and the other one is much more inert and uh, just surface and we'll get to it. <laughs> you know, I it's hard when it's hard when you're talking about, you know, this happened with Harakiri too where you've got these two movies that you can't help but compare, and you, you know, it's it's difficult to. Well, it, it's harder because you know Harakiri, the two plots are almost identical, right? For the two Harakiris, and then you know the the few differences that there were, were were fairly easy to talk about, right? Uh, 
these are two radically different interpretations of the same basic source material. So it's much harder to talk about one in isolation. Yeah. Because, because they are so different. But uh, let, me, let me give you my initial reading of, of the film a long time ago. And I have a different reading of this now. But when I, when I first saw it, I thought the film was, was basically saying that kind of like uh, in uh, Contact where, you know, humans have this drive to explore the universe and what we ultimately end up finding is just our own past. Like in, in Contact, uh, Jodie Foster makes contact with the aliens and it ends up being like her dead dad. And in Solaris, Chris Kelvin goes, you know, halfway across the, the galaxy or whatever to this strange planet and just ends up living in his own past. And it's just this kind of solipsistic idea that they're not really exploring, you know, they're not really looking for new worlds, they're looking for mirrors, which is a line, I think, in both versions of Solaris. Uh, and that's, that struck me as really problematic. It's really a kind of solipsistic idea that, that humans are just so self-obsessed that we can even go to a, a new alien planet, and all we're really interested in is dealing with our own personal issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still see that in Solaris, but I don't think that... Uh, I think Tarkovsky's... I, the perspective I'm getting from Tarkovsky is more that that is sad than that that mm. is like an inevitable product of the human condition. Like, I think you feel sorry for the solipsism of the scientists. Like, the, the one that kills himself. Like, I, I think he's one who's not able to kind of put those memories into place in their place and then carry on with his scientific explorations. He becomes overwhelmed by them. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Well, first of all, I can't comment on the uh, film version of uh, Contact. But you've read the book. I've read the book. Carl Sagan fan. Um, and that's not, you know, it's been years since I read the book. It's been about 10 years since I read the book. And that's definitely not the uh, the point of the book. You know, the, the aliens... It, it, it the reason the aliens in the book look like um, human beings and that it it's on a beach um, where she finally makes contact with the aliens is because Carl Sagan was really smart and he was like, if we ever see aliens, there's no humans cannot conceive what the aliens will look like. There's there's no way our minds our imaginations are not you know great enough to to create what an alien would look like. So I'm going to, as a little, you know, workaround for that, I'm going to have the aliens be very smart and, you know, create their own, like, you know, temporal... Avatars. Yeah, avatars, as it were. But anyway, that's the bigger digression. Um, I can see that, yeah, definitely. I, but I don't think that's the only theme of this movie, though, is what you're saying. Um, no, no, I, but I think that's how it deals with solipsism, whereas before I had reduced right. it to just this one idea that I thought was kind of dumb. Yeah. And now I see it as, as a, multiple ideas. A critique and, and, on that idea itself as opposed to just being the idea. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I can do it. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, what I liked about this movie too, though, is that the, it is engaged in so many different ideas and there are, you know, these characters and there are not many characters. There are only, you know... There's only three, three people on the, space on, the, station on the space station. And the alien, or the facsimile of uh, Calvin's uh, dead wife. Um, but they have these these very, and I'll call them Russian, you know, philosophical arguments, you know, that are really engaging and really interesting. I, um, you know, there's that scene in the library when um, Snout is celebrating his birthday and he's drunk or whatever, but then they have this kind of, they kind of hash out, you know, their feelings on this whole enterprise. And um, 
it's very engaging and very interesting stuff. Yeah, and inter- intercut throughout that are these uh, these paintings, which uh, which Tarkovsky sets up throughout the the movie. It's like a series of, of paintings by a uh, Bruegel, I think. Sure. <laughs> About the like the four seasons, and it gave, you'll have like obsessive tracks into like hunters in the snow or something, and it's this this uh, yeah, interesting visual motif through mm-hmm. the film. And so there's there's an intellectual argument happening, you know, amongst the characters, which you can um, dive into um, yourself while you're watching this. Um, and I'm going to talk about the Soderbergh one here for a second. The Soderbergh movie, the only even inkling of something like that is this really trite conversation is a flashback where they're talking about the concept of God and, and how man has created the concept of God or whatever. Um, and I was like, is this him trying to do this, but failing miserably or what? But that was, that was really bad. I'm just saying that right now. Yeah. I, uh, I noted that scene as well and, and said that I have never been to a party like this where somebody just pontificates on the anthropomorphization of God, at least not since I was 22 and, and all of my friends were stoned. <laughs> hey, he's you never know. He's a highly successful professional adult and he's still babbling about God at cocktail parties. Yeah, it was that was really bad. And, and these are supposed to be... I mean, I think you, you can get pretentious... You, you can, people can be pretentious at any point, point in their life. You know, I, I've met plenty of pretentious people that are older than me um, who still do stuff like this. But these characters in this in the second one are, are um, you know, professionals. They're, you know, they're, they're like he's a psychologist, a really well-regarded psychologist, the only psychologist they think of to send to the mo- to the space station. Yeah, apparently he's the ideal man for this job. Right. Um, but anyway, back to back to. Um, this is going to be a freewheeling episode of the George Sanders show. Let me yeah. just say, um, if you haven't fastened your seatbelts yet, do it now. And if you're listening to this in the car, you should be wearing your seatbelt anyway. I don't get it. Yeah, if you don't do that. It's the law. Be safe. Buckle up. Um, another thing about this movie that uh, the original is it, it gave me an inkling of why the um, space program kind of dwindled in the public's fascination. You know, everybody says it was, you know, once the space race was over and got to the moon, you know, the public, there wasn't any interest in it. You know what it really is? I'll tell you right now. It's when our astronauts and cosmonauts stopped wearing leather jackets with mesh shirts. Because that, my friend, that's the key to fascination. I actually thought, the, like, the design and the, and the costume design showed some, uh, some, uh, some clear influence on Star Wars. Like those pants oh, that yeah. he wears, but with the belt is, is very Han Solo. It's very Han Solo, and the uh, the the uh, the tubular hallways, very much like the, uh, the yeah on the Death Star. Falcon. Oh, on yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Well, the, the, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, there was a lot of leather in space in this movie. A lot of leather chairs. Well, they 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 basically you know dress like they're on Earth. Like it's not you know like Logan's Run was a very kind of self conscious attempt to be futuristic which uh, we talked about in a previous episode as not working at all and just looking dated and dumb and looking yeah. like the 1970s. You know, this this movie could have been made at any time. Like, you can't look... You don't look at it and say, oh, yeah, that was 1972. It could just as easily have been 1992. Well, that yellow mesh shirt. <laughs> I, like how, I like how he's got... What's his name? I call him the Russian uh, Marcello Mastriani, but what's his name? Uh, he's Our uh, star. He's uh, Estonian, I believe, uh, or Lithuanian. He's uh, Donatus Banionis. 
Well, I love how he's he's not afraid to rock the mesh shirt with the gut. Like he's got he's got the tummy, you know, but he's like, yeah, it's, I'm gonna I'm gonna rock it. It's yeah. all good. <laughs> I thought I thought he was, I thought he was pretty good. I, I think I, he's very great. I the, think he's very good in this. I think the the clear acting star of the movie is Natalia Vanderchuk, who yeah. plays uh, who plays his wife uh, uh, Hari. Hari, like yeah. she's. She's terrific, and she doesn't get a lot of like uh, kind of dialogue or everything. She kills herself a couple of times, and uh, comparing her performance <laughs> to to Natasha Macalone in uh, the remake shows you just how much value there is in stillness in acting and in not saying anything and in not in, in you know obviously emoting and being melodramatic like it's, it's a much more powerful performance and it's a much quieter performance oh yeah she's 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 really wonderful she's very haunting um you see you see an intelligence behind her eyes you see her um reacting to um the situations that she's in and uh she's adrift but there's the the scene in the second one when uh, Clooney's going to leave her the first time and he starts walking towards the door and she screams. I mean, just like caterwauling screams. And it's really histrionic and just terribly... I love, I love the way Tarkovsky plays that scene because, because Kelvin sneaks out and she's asleep. Right. And he gets out into the hallway and all of a sudden you hear like these, these eerie like noises and you see like the, the metal in the door buckling and you hear this like screaming and then, uh, you know, it's, it's really unsettling. There are, there are so many unsettling things that, that Tarkovsky does, just little tiny things yeah. like, uh, 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 Chuck's dress when she first appears has like, uh, laces Right, like uh, shoelace loops in the back, and uh, uh, Kelvin asks her to put on a spacesuit. So take off your dress, put on a spacesuit. So she tries to untie it, but the dress is doesn't come apart. The dress doesn't come apart because, like the the alien mind that created it, didn't quite understand that that's how you makes the it, it makes that's how you make a dress. Right. Um, and there's also like a little tear on the sleeve of the dress mm-hmm. that that doesn't really have any explanation. It comes about later. It's like you find Kelvin's remembering. She, yeah. that's how she killed herself, but. Um, it's just these little tiny touches, and, well, it, also, and it goes along with like the the subtlety of like the people uh, appearing in the in the three hundred and sixty degree pans where you don't quite expect them, right? Uh, and also the the weightlessness scene. There's like thirty seconds where uh, the station is changing its orbit, so everyone's going to be weightless, and they're all sitting in the library, and everything just kind of floats. Yeah, except the books that were on the shelf didn't in the background. That kind of annoyed me, but yes, it, that scene is really beautiful. Um, and also, there's the um, what I think is one of the greatest parts of the film, and it's it, it's very simple, but um, each time Hari appears, she has this shawl or this like blanket or whatever she's got, this little knit thing, yeah. and she leaves it on the chair, and then she dies, and then the next one of her comes back, got the same thing, and then she she also leaves it on the chair. So he's accumulating these um, copies, you know, um, and I thought that was a that imagery, you know, the, he kind of lingers on that chair, you know, and, you, and he even, um, Kelvin, he's getting her ready, I think, maybe to go to the birthday party, and he he gets, you know, she gets up, and he grabs her shawl, and then you see the other one just still sitting on the chair, and they leave the room, you know, and whatever. Yeah. Those things are great. Yeah, and I, I love, the, like, you know, the practical effects, not just the, the weightlessness, but also the scene where she's, uh, 
uh, after the the party scene, she's drinking drank uh, liquid oxygen to kill herself. And they're like, they find her on the f- floor and she's all frozen and then she thaws mm-hmm. and then comes back to life and it's all kind of spastic and everything. Uh, that's so much better than the, the kind of CGI uh, version of the same scene in uh, in the Soderbergh. Like, it looks much more realistic even though, you know, there's no blood or anything. It's just... She's wearing makeup and then she's kind of wet. Spazzing out. Yeah. Well, uh, talking about CGI... Um, the images of the uh, ocean in both mm-hmm. films, or, well, I guess in the Soderbergh one, they don't even mention the ocean. It's just a planet. Yeah. But yeah. Um, but the images in the original are tactile, and, they're, and they're, they're, they're these swirling, abstract things that are just freaking amazing looking. The, the, the water images, not just the, the ocean, like the kind of psychedelic lava lamp ocean, yeah. but the, the pond... From, from the beginning. From his, uh, Kelvin's grandfather's house. There's yeah. like the seaweed waving in the pond. And then in the the later version of, of the pond, he goes back and it's frozen. And you can't really tell because it's not like covered in ice. It's just the water isn't moving. Right. And it takes you a while to notice that the water isn't moving. Uh, and then like the, the final shot of the movie is uh, uh, Tarkovsky is a great filmmaker of rain. Like Tarkovsky and, and Kurosawa are, you know, and uh, chiming the on. Uh, filmmakers who who love rain and rain is, is and Stanley Donnan is always very very dramatic and very you know thematically important to the films and and the the final kicker in Solaris is when Kev, Kelvin walks into his grandfather's house and note and it's raining inside yeah. and it's it's so eerie and so unnerving and you, and you realize that he's actually like on the planet and it's a an imperfect reconstruction of his memory. Uh, Soderbergh makes some attempt at rain. <laughs> it's nowhere near as as interesting. Well, no, it isn't, and it, yeah, it it's it it it's bungled. It's totally bungled. But um, but what I was saying was showing those shots, and and the original film shows the the waves or whatever the cosmic whatever um, of Solaris several times in the movie. Um, and it's just gorgeous. And it really reminds me of, like, the Tree of Life, you know, those kind of abstract scenes of the beginning of life and stuff like that, you know. And then in the in the James Cameron-produced 2002 remake, it's all CGI. It looks like, you know, a, a screensaver or something like that. And it's yeah, just, it's you like Yeah, it's like a pink and blue cloud yeah. swirl with, like, lightning. Yeah, and it, it doesn't have any sort of... There's no awe. And he intercuts between it like like the planet is like talking to George Clooney's mind to like cut between them uh, whereas it serves more as kind of bumpers in the in the Tarkovsky where it's like pillow shots like like breaks in in the action where the planet is thinking but it's not really communicating with people yeah it, it communicates in in shot reverse shot fashion with in the Soderbergh yeah so anyway, we'll talk about the Soderbergh <laughs> later let's uh, let's take a little break now and we'll listen to some Brian Eno. What are we going to listen to? Right On now? some Faraway Beach, which, which is, is your pick this week. is one of my favorite songs, and it it seems to me like a song that could have been written with Solaris in mind. I No, as soon as you suggested it for the show, I, I, I said emphatically, yes, let's do it, because uh, I, love, I love Eno. He's the man. I'm sure Brian Eno saw this movie. Before he wrote <laughs> I'm this sure. This song, so here we go. Here we go.
Thank you, Brian Peter George St. John Lee Baptiste de La Salle Eno, which is Brian Eno's full name. Wow. Yeah. Did you just read that off the internet? I did. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have it memorized. I knew it was Brian Peter George something, but... Um, yeah, that's a lot of names. It's a lot of names. You can understand why he just goes by Eno. <laughs> anyway, uh, so we were off last week for a very good reason. Sean, you were at the Vancouver International Film Festival. It was your, what, fifth year, sixth year? Fifth in six years. How did this uh, year uh, compare to years previous? I it, it wasn't as good as last year, but last year was like ridiculously amazing. Yeah, uh, and it was hurt somewhat by the fact that that I had to leave, uh, you know, after only after only eight days there. So I missed a lot of of really you know cool looking stuff that has played since I've been gone. Yeah, but uh, I'm only ever there for like seven or eight days. And the seven or eight days I was there last year were better than the seven or eight days I was there this year. But it was still a really cool, really cool festival. And, and What was the best film you saw this year at the Vancouver International Film Festival? I don't really know. I have, like, a top seven. And I'm not really sure how to rank them from, you know, within that group. What was the worst movie you saw at the Vancouver International Film Festival? Uh, feature or short? Feature. Uh, the worst feature I saw was was Bruno Dumont's uh, Camille Claudel, 1915, starring Juliette Binoche, which I hated. <laughs> I hated it so much. <laughs> and I love Juliette Binoche. Yeah? But it's... She couldn't save it, huh? No. Okay. What was the worst short you saw? Uh, there's a, a collection of shorts called 3x3D, or 3x3D, that's got uh, 3D shorts. Uh, one's by Jean-Luc Godard. Uh-huh. One's by Peter Greenaway, mm-hmm. and the third is by some guy named Edgar Perra, who nobody apparently has ever heard of, but he uh, is a Portuguese filmmaker who apparently lives in the town whose museum funded the other two shorts. Ah. So they let him make a short, too, uh-huh. and it is pretty much the worst thing in the history of film. <laughs> It's absolutely terrible. And, like, the consensus going into the film is, like, you know, people, some people think that, like, The Greenaway is okay. And they're kind of mixed on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they love the Godard, of course, because it's Godard. And the Para thing is absolutely terrible. And I can confirm that that is, in fact, the truth. Uh, so where does the Para, like, how, um, is it the first, second, or third film in the thing? Initially, it was the last one uh-huh. when the uh, when the program first started playing. I I don't know if it was Cannes or Berlin or or wherever it first shot popped up on festivals. Uh-huh. But what people were doing was they'd watch the Greenway first, and then they'd watch the Godard, and then everyone would leave ah. because nobody would want to watch the Para, or they'd you know get five minutes into it and realize that it's the worst thing in the history of film and walk out of it. So now it's first. So now they put it uh, uh, second. Uh, ahead of the Godard. They move the Godard to last. Uh, and everyone wants to go to see the Godard because he's Jean-Luc Godard. So right. they have to sit through it in order to get to the one that they really want to see. Ouch. <laughs> it's just it's just terrible. Oh, man. Are it's, you gonna... it's ugly and it's strident and it yells and it's not funny at all and it's really, really stupid. Awesome. Are you going to go next year? Oh, Definitely. It's it's a it's a fantastic festival like it and you know it's it's Canada so everyone is really nice yeah uh, it's not an industry festival like Toronto or Sundance so you don't have like the the assholes on their phones all during the screenings like it's a festival for people who actually like movies and there's a lot of like there's a really cool you know kind of critical community that that sprung up in Vancouver over the years and 
you know, it's it's a lot of fun. It's it's great programming, especially for Asian films. It's it's uh, it's one of the the leading you know non Asian festivals for Asian films around the world, and it's uh, it's programmed by Tony Raines, who's um, you might write, he does like the the commentary on the Criterion Chunking Express, and he's just kind of this this expert on on Asian language films, and 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 uh, he runs this program where. Uh, they have like uh, six or seven films from new directors, like directors who are early in their in their career that haven't really broken through internationally yet, and they'll do like a, a a series of their films, and then they'll like give out a prize that's like you know ten thousand dollars or whatever to make their next movie. And uh, previous winners were like Jia Jangka, Hong Sang Soo, Koreeda Hirokazu. Uh, with Sassanatiang, you know, directors who have gone on to be really successful. And I actually saw all, all seven of the competition films this year, and the, the jury ended up awarding, like, three prizes, and their their top three were the same as my top three, although I would have slightly changed the order around. Well, you should be on the jury. I am not <laughs> qualified. To well, you, you, you did get a press pass this year, though. I did. Uh, did the George Sanders show help you get a press pass? Unfortunately, no. Oh, I did not. I did travesty. Not, uh, I could have. Uh, I didn't. I didn't mention that we would be talking about it on the show. So, the uh, my press pass says the end of cinema, and they shot pictures, but no, no George Sanders show. Horse horse manure. My top seven of the festival was uh, a touch of sin by Jia Jenka, uh, Arsun He by Hong Sang Soo, uh, La Ultima Pelicula by Raya Martin and Mark Perenson. That one has a cool poster. Yeah, it's, uh, it doesn't have distribution yet, but it is. Uh, it was really funny, and it was it was a lot of fun seeing it in the theater because Mark Parenson is uh, he's like a he's a film critic. He's like the editor of Cinemascope magazine, and he's been attached to the Vancouver Film Festival for a long time. And so uh, all the people in the audience kind of knew him, and he was there for the screening. So it was it was very sweet. Oh, how touching. Uh, the Missing Picture, which is this uh, documentary about the Khmer Rouge, that's also about like the impossibility of making a documentary that like captures the horror of the Khmer Rouge, which is just really kind of devastating. Uh, there's a uh, this movie Wolf Children, uh, which is an anime is very very Ghibli like mm-hmm. that uh, is about like watching your kids grow up and become adults, and that was the last movie I saw at the festival after not seeing my kids for a week, and it I was a mess. Uh, and I can't remember the last two. Well, we'll link to them on the uh, the old blog. Yeah, I'm going I'm going through and and writing about them. Oh, Simon uh, Leong's uh, Stray Dogs, which is uh, have you seen any of Chai's movies? Mm-hmm. Okay, don't start with this one. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the the culmination of like 20 years of of the story that he of this one guy that he's been following for a long time and it's it's pretty awesome and i think that's six and i'm missing one more we'll link to it in the notes for this show yeah like i said before you decided to keep talking <laughs> oh i saw goodbye dragon in okay yeah yeah i saw good, i saw goodbye dragon in that okay. movie's that movie's really good yeah well there you go there's vancouver yeah rock and roll there's going to be much more to come. Like I said, I'm, I'm writing about all the movies on my website and also my other podcasts. We're going to be doing a, uh, my co-host went to Toronto and so we're going to be comparing festival experiences in Canada. So I've wanted to go to Toronto. Look for that in the future. For a while. Um, 
I've, I've been to Montreal. Beautiful city. You've been to Montreal? Beautiful city. Uh, Vancouver's all right. I like Vancouver a lot. Yeah, but I'd like to get to Toronto sometime. We should do. We should go to Toronto together. Do the podcast from Toronto some year. I don't want to go to the Toronto Film Festival. <sighs> I don't like. I don't like the uh, you know the industry people. You're like a reverse snob. <laughs> so our cinema central for this week is movies wherein people see dead people, which. We We're both not, picking the sixth sense. Which we did not think of 30 seconds before we started <laughs> recording. No, not at all. No, that didn't happen. Uh, so what is your pick? Who, who is your favorite scene of Dead People movie? Uh, well, since I kind of just uh, pulled this one out of my ass, uh, I'm actually going to go with uh, Tim Burton's Beetlejuice, ah. which uh, I, you know, I guess this isn't necessarily fair because I haven't really seen any Tim Burton movies um, since 1996, but like prior to 1996, I was a huge Tim Burton fan, as a lot of people were, you know. But I've gone back to revisit some of those movies since then, um, and the rose-colored glasses are gone, and a lot of those don't really hold up. I really liked his Batmans when I was a kid, and I rewatched those a few years ago, and they are not very good. Um, I still got to think they're better than the Christopher Nolan Batmans. They're better than some of the. I, I think that I actually think the Dark Knight is is better. Um, it's but his yeah Burton's are better than the Dark Knight Rises and okay yeah. I didn't see that one. It's really bad. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah you know, I haven't seen the the Burton Batman's for it, they really don't hold 15, up. I mean years. there's some good things about them. You know the the production design and stuff. But anyway, tangent. Michael um, Keaton. Michael Keaton, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Robert Wool. Uh, <laughs> Prince and Prince, a little bat dance for you. Anyway, um, but yeah. So, but I think, and I think that Edward Scissorhands, which I really liked at the time, I, I don't think I would like it as much if I saw it now. It kind of be annoying. I was always kind of mixed on Edward Scissorhands. That, that was not, that was a movie that was like everyone's favorite Tim Burton movie. That I was just like, eh. well, my my favorite Tim Burton movie is uh, is Ed Wood. And I think that that will probably remain the case until he's done. Ed, Ed Wood, I rewatched a, a couple years ago, and it, it, it's, it's really good. really good. Yeah, I really like that movie. But anyway, Beetlejuice. I think Beetlejuice, I haven't watched it in a long time. I think that that one, probably of his first run of films, is probably the one that holds up the best for me, I think. Um, it's got Michael Keaton. He's really great in it. And Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin, Alec Baldwin. are really fantastic in it. And Winona Ryder, uh, Catherine O'Hara... Jeffrey Jones. I mean, it's a it's, really it's great, a, it's cast. A great cast, and it's a it's a fun little movie with ghosts and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> Beetlejuice is great. I love Beetlejuice. It's got it's got you know it uh, it's got the the great kind of Tim Burton gothic pop goth pop gothic you know eighties version of the Adams Family kind of vibe. Yeah, to it, and it's it's not. Uh, uh, later Tim Burton movies, I, ha- I haven't really seen any of them. Like uh, Sleepy Hollow is pretty much where I turned to. Oh, I saw Sleepy Hollow of, of Tim. Yeah, Burton. that was really bad. And I just rewatched that again a few months ago, and it's 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 better than I remembered it being, but it's not good. Yeah, like his his last good movie for me was was Mars Attacks, which I I think is hilarious. I I have to rewatch Mars Attacks because I saw it long time ago and I didn't really care for it that much and I, I don't even know if I saw the whole thing I mean it's just seen part of it on TV and it just wasn't working for me um, the last Burton movie I saw was uh, I was dragged to see Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and it is god awful 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's bad. It's really, really bad. And and the main problem with with like the later Tim Burton movies that that I have seen is that I just I can't think of any reason why they exist. Like, the, oh yeah, there just there doesn't seem to be any of Tim Burton in it. It's it's just like he's going through the motions. Like he didn't need to make Sleepy Hollow. There was no like burning desire to make Charlie and Chocolate Factory. But in his early films, there is that energy. There is that kind of personal investment. Like you can see that that he needed to make Beetlejuice. That Beetlejuice says something about Tim Burton's vision of the world and and personal relationships and family. And you know it's filtered through this kind of you know goofy gothic uh, sense of humor. But it's still a very personal expression, and the same with like Ed Wood and even Mars Attacks. Well, to be fair, you know, I've heard that Big Fish is pretty decent. I haven't seen. Yeah, it, but, I haven't seen that one yeah. either. But you know, and and that uh, Sweeney Todd's supposed to be pretty good, but I haven't seen that. Either. Uh, Sweeney Todd is is okay. Oh, so you did see that? One. I did see. Okay. I, I saw Sweeney. I've seen like some of the later ones. Okay. Like I've seen Charlie and Chocolate Factory. I've seen Sweeney Todd. Sweeney Todd was fine. Okay, but I think that has as much to do with with Stephen Sondheim as it does right. with with Tim Burton. Sure, sure. My pick for the uh, the scene Dead People movie is one that we always wanted to play at Metro Classics, but we could never figure out uh, 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 how to fit it in thematically, and that's uh, The Ghost of Mrs. Muir. Yep. Uh, and it's my pick because of Gene Tierney. <laughs> what about Rex Harrison? Rex Harrison is terrific. He's he, great. He, Rex Harrison. Uh, Gene Tierney is like a, a widow who buys a house, and the house is haunted by, by Rex Harrison. He's like a, a grizzled sea captain. And he basically, you know, like helps her self-actualize. She yeah, it's a great movie. Becomes a writer, and it's you know, it's, it's about like the relationship between this woman and this ghost. Yeah, Joseph Mankiewicz, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah Joseph L. Mankiewicz was one of his one of his first uh, directorial efforts. Uh, yeah, it's great. It's a great it's movie. Charming. Well, now that I now that we just had this discussion, I should have picked Goodbye Dragon Inn. Now that we're talking about that, it. that is a great scene of dead people. That's uh, it's 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 all set in this theater that's that's supposedly closing, and so it's like this empty auditorium that's playing King Who's uh, Dragon Inn, and there's like a couple people in the theater, but uh, and one of them like spins up, uh, ends up spending most of the movie just kind of wandering around the theater, and at one point he's wandering in like this like kind of underground backstage and sees all of these men, all of these like single men that had been in the theater to uh to hook up Mm -hmm. so it's like the ghosts of all of the past you know subterranean movie theater hookups yeah it's great it's great i i'm i'm changing my pick (laughs) (laughs) screw you tim burton (laughs) take that yeah there you go that's my pick all right uh speaking of seeing dead people uh our person of the week is george clooney who is very much alive so far as i know (laughs) but his pig is dead you know he lived with a pig for like fifteen years. No. Yeah, he's a bachelor, and he had this pig. I don't remember the pig's name. Um, and why does the fact that he's a bachelor mean that he would have a pig? No, it just means <laughs> he, he. People were always talking about how he can't commit. He's not gonna, you know, settle down and he stuff. He could commit to the. He pig. committed to the pig. Okay. Look it up. It happened. All anyway, right. Clooney's the star of our show today uh, because he's in the second Solaris and he's in Gravity, um, and you know he's a big movie star. He is. You know? And he does other things. You know, he produces stuff, he writes, he directs. Uh, he's got the new film Monuments Men coming out this Christmas. Um, have you seen the trailer for that? Have you heard anything about it? Nah, I don't watch trailers. Um, it or, actually. Or I, movies. 
You just talk about movies. That's all you do. You don't even watch them. Um, Monuments Men, you know, it looks like it's the Clooney wheelhouse. It's him and Damon. Uh, but the, the secondary cast is really great. It's uh, Bob Balaban, John Goodman, Bill Murray. And they're these um, specialists, you know, in art and, and architecture and stuff. Who It takes place in World War II. And they are sent out to determine what things need to be saved from the Nazis. Okay. And it's based on, you know, true story and stuff. And, you know, it, it looks pretty fun. You know, casual fun. So anyway. But anyway, so Clooney, he's been around for, what, 30 years now? At least. You know, from the... Uh, I, don't mean, I don't mean since the conception. <laughs> like, from, well, it, you know, I, I remember him on the Facts of Life in the 80s. That's he true. Was, he was on Roseanne. He was on Roseanne. He was great on Roseanne. Yeah. Yeah. He, he beat up Jackie. That was messed up. And then John Goodman. Remember that one? John Goodman, like, beat the crap out of him. That was dope. It was a good show, Roseanne was. It was for like four or five seasons. And then it went totally insane. Yeah. My wife loves Roseanne. She even watches like the later seasons. Does she really? I haven't, I kind of want to see the uh, last season when it's all a dream or whatever. I've seen, I've seen little bits of it. It's, it's not good. It's weird. Basically when they, when they got the new Becky is when the show. But Becky weird. came back for the final season. I, I, I first really, you know, caught on to Clooney when he uh, was on ER. And that was kind of his, his break for role as, like, the, the pediatrician who can't commit to the women who love him. Uh-huh. Uh, and then, you know, it was a great kind of star-making role. He was very charming, but he also got to, you know, like, save a kid in the middle of a flood by, you know, sticking a ballpoint pen down his throat. Yeah, I've never, I've never seen a single moment of ER. It was a good show. Yeah. For a while. Okay. I, I, quit, I quit watching when he left, basically. Ah, uh, you abandoned ship, huh? Uh, but you know, movie wise, I think I think he's a good movie star. He's he's charming. He's very likable. He makes interesting choices, but I don't know that there's a lot of really great George Clooney movies. If you had to pick like your favorite George Clooney movie, what would it be? My favorite George Clooney movie would probably be. That's. I, I need to look at this filmography. We're going to take a break here for a second while I look at George Clooney's filmography here. I mean, he's been he's been in a lot of movies, a lot of acclaimed movies that I don't really like, like the the Ocean's Eleven movies. Basically, anything with Steven Soderbergh. Good Night and Good Luck is a really good movie that he uh, he directed that one, didn't he? Yeah, he wrote and directed it. But he he only has a supporting role in it. You know, he has a very tiny role in The Thin Red Line. Uh, Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou is a great movie, and he's the star of that one. Other than that, Michael Clayton, I think, is overrated, although he's pretty good in it. Up in the Air, I didn't lot, did not like. Uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, I love, but he's just a voice in that. The Descendants, I didn't see. I would probably go Burn After Reading. <laughs> uh, looking at his filmography here, um, let me tell, tell you a little about Clooney. I really didn't like Clooney before I'd really seen anything from him because I thought he was kind of smarmy and stuff. And just seeing him like on magazines and stuff, I was like, ah, this is a you know, pretty boy or whatever. Um, and even when I saw um, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, I was kind of like, ah, he's mugging. He's kind of just, you know, there's something about this guy that rubs me the wrong way, you know. Um, but I did, I did kind of warm to him over time and, and seeing him in things... Um, I really kind of came around to him. And then there was a profile of him in The New Yorker a few years ago. Yeah, I read that. It was a very good profile, and it really kind of made me appreciate the guy. He seems to be intelligent and, you know, engaged, and, you know, he seems like a, a cool dude. Yeah, I mean, and that's and that's part of his 
his movie star persona is that he seems like a nice guy that would hang out with you. If, you know, if you met George Clooney in a bar, he would be like, hey, come on over well, and have a drink. Here's and the pivotal thing about George that Clooney. That would never happen. <laughs> True. But his best friend is Richard Kind, which <laughs> is really funny. That is, that is funny. That's pretty funny, huh? <laughs> um, but I actually, you know, what do you think of him? Okay, we've talked about him as an actor, but what do you think about him as a, a writer and a director? Because I've seen uh, Good Night and Good Luck, which I think is very good. Um, and I've seen um, his adaptation of uh, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Did you see that? I really liked that movie, too. Um, I haven't seen Leatherheads, and I haven't seen... Uh, what was the last one he did? Uh, Ides of March. I didn't see yeah, that. Either, but Yeah. Yeah. He's he's fine. I You know... Sure. <laughs> I mean, the, he's not he's not anything special as a writer or as a director. Like he has he has issues that he wants to address in his movies, and his movies do that, and and that's fine. And I pretty much you know agree with him politically. So there's not really anything like that's going to like challenge me or or open my eyes to seeing the world in a new way. And as a director, he's not you know anything to speak of as an artist visually. You don't think he's an auteur? I, he might be. I mean, he's, like, he's only made three movies. You know, it's it's too early to say, or four movies, I guess. But I don't, I don't, I don't know that there's a lot connecting Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, Good Night and Good Luck, and Leatherheads in uh, in auteurist terms. It's very possible, but uh, yeah, I mean, he's he's a likable star. He makes likable movies, but yeah, there's something missing in Clooney for me. He's not. He's not like a Cary Grant. He's he's kind of missing that extra element. Well, yeah, I mean, as a, as a movie star. Yeah, but can you name anybody nowadays that is a Cary Grant? Well, Chiang Fat in the eighties and nineties. I said nowadays, my friend. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, sure, Clooney. I, I think he's a. I think he's a cool guy. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, somebody like Matt Damon, who's a, a contemporary of Clooney, they've been in, uh, worked in a lot of the same material, I think is more adventurous as an actor than Clooney is, as more willing to take risks with his star persona, and it has made better movies. Like, it, I, uh, Matt Damon, early in his career, was in Talented Mr. Ripley, and I can't see Clooney ever taking on a role like that. Yeah, no, you're right. I, I think Matt Damon is, uh, is really awesome. Uh, you know, I, I think you're right. He does really interesting things. Um, he's, you know, what's funny about him is, you know, when the whole, um, when he first came on the scene with uh, Ben Affleck, you know, I kind of thought Affleck was the smart one, you know, because cause Damon kind of looks like the pretty boy, you know, that yeah. he's kind of like built like a football player kind of thing, you know. Yeah. All American kid, got, or whatever. He looks like he's he looks like Iowa. Yeah, he looks like <laughs> Iowa. That's right. He's like Riley Finn on Buffy. You know yeah. what I mean? But it's so funny to see that. Uh, boy, was I wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I like Clooney much better than Ben Affleck. Me too. I so. think Ben Affleck is is is. I, I he's pulled the wool over some people's eyes, and I I think he's terrible. I think he's destructive. I don't like what he's doing. Um, as an actor or as a director, um, yeah, I don't know that I have that strong opinions. So I don't I, like. I, I just thought that Argo was was pretty lame. Argo is really lame, and I, I just think the guy's kind of stupid. But that's <laughs> <laughs> I'm picking a fight with Ben Affleck right here, right now. All right. Um, but anyway, yeah. So I, you know, I, I would do that. He's Batman. He is Batman, and I couldn't care less. Everybody was asking me about that for some reason. Like, 
it seemed to be like a big deal. They they were like, you know, what do you think about what do they call it, Bathleck or were they? Yeah, or whatever. Um, and I was like, I don't care. I'm not going to see it. You know who else is Batman? George, George Clooney. Clooney. It's true. He was. I didn't. I didn't see that one. Neither did I. I've watched the clips online of uh, you know the Mr. Freeze puns. Mm. Those are pretty good. Ice to see you. Yeah. What killed the dinosaurs? The Ice Age. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about George Clooney. On yeah, on that note, let's uh, let's hear some Clooney in Soderbergh's Solaris. You think you're dreaming me? You're not Chiborian. No. Who am I then? A puppet, and you're not. Maybe you're my puppet. But like all puppets, you think you're actually human. It's the puppet's dream, being human. Why did you kill yourself? It seemed like a good idea at the time. Now I think I made a mistake. What about your son? And that's not my son. My son is on Earth. And that's not your wife. The Avant of Solaris. Remember that. What does Solaris want from us? Why do you think it has to want something? This is why you have to leave. If you keep thinking there's a solution, you'll die here. I can't leave her. I'll figure it out. Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? There are no answers. Only choices. All right, that was a clip from Steven Soderbergh's 2002 re-adaptation of Stanislaw Lem's novel Solaris. Uh, he was very clear when he made the movie that it was not a remake of the Tarkovsky film, but it was a different version of the novel. Right. I don't know about you, but... <laughs> They're, they're, I love where this is going. I just love it. There, there, there are some filmmakers out there, and I think everybody has them that that just do not connect with you. That they're like your your kryptonite. That no matter you know how many times you 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 watch them, you just cannot get on the same wavelength of them. And the people who praise them, when you read what they write about that filmmaker, it's like they're talking in another language. Like the words simply don't make sense. Maybe that's your experience with, like, Wes Anderson. Yes, it is. Steven Soderbergh is my kryptonite. <laughs> I, I have seen, you know, maybe a dozen Soderbergh movies. I have tried to understand what people see in this guy, but I don't get it. I can't stand him. There's, there's one Steven Soderbergh movie I like, and it's because of a, a very charming cast, including Michael Keaton and George Clooney. And because of Elmore Leonard. Everything else, I think, is just utter crap. <laughs> and I don't get it. He's like one of the most acclaimed directors of his generation. Yes, he is. He has an army of, of critics that I admire and respect and who are generally, you know, insightful, who will defend him. Well, and filmmakers, too. I was just reading an article, uh, this really great profile of Spike Jones. um, for his new film, her, you know, he he was making the movie, and he, you know, his his uh, cut was 
too long. You know, he's like, I got to whittle this down. But he was so invested in his, his movie that he was like, I don't know where to cut. And who does he call? He calls Soderbergh to take a look at it. And Soderbergh takes it for like 48 hours and gives him a new cut of it. Like, I, I, I take no pleasure in just like in Steven Soderbergh's <laughs> movies. He seems like a nice guy. And like he, you know, he, you know, he's helpful. He gets along with people. He has, you know, he tries interesting projects. Yeah. He does, he does stuff that is interesting to me. But I just don't like his movies. Uh, I know you feel this way. Um, I, unfortunately, I, I wish I could, um, you know, argue uh, for Soderbergh. But to be honest, I just actually haven't seen that much Soderbergh because the stuff I've seen hasn't intrigued me. Um, I do like Out of Sight, like you, um, which I actually just saw in the last year or two. Um, and I actually, I, I think Out of Sight's pretty good. Everything else I've seen of his, uh, the, I saw the first Oceans movie, and I saw the end of the third one on cable at like a motel room, and it was awful. It was terrible. Um, I saw Schizopolis when it came out when I was uh, 15, and I thought it was great then. Uh, I think I would hate it now. Uh, I think I would hate myself. <laughs> um, and But to be honest, um, I actually haven't seen... Uh, any of his other films. I've been intrigued by a couple. Um, I hear The Informant is interesting, um, but I, I, yeah, I can't argue in favor of Soderbergh. So let's just tear him apart because uh, Solaris sucks. Well, let's talk about this movie <laughs> and we already kind of touched on it and and I, I want to give it the benefit of the doubt. Like, it's it's not fair to say this movie is not as good as the Tarkovsky movie. You didn't do things exactly the same way Tarkovsky did, therefore your movie sucks. And that's not how no, 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 no. that's not a proper way to evaluate a remake. Absolutely. So I want I want to take this movie on its own terms and see if it works just by its own logic and I don't think it does. No. Like and and my issue is not so much that it, you know, it doesn't have long takes and it doesn't have, you know, lengthy discussions of philosophy like the Tarkovsky did. It's that it, what it is, is a really kind of silly melodramatic love story that ends in not like a, an ironic place, but just in kind of a dumb place. So we have, we have the same setup. We don't, we don't have like the lengthy earth sequence. Again, it just, it, uh, the novel actually starts with Kelvin's arrival on the space station. There's a bit more of a prologue to this movie, but it's, and it's a very kind of Hollywood prologue where yes, it is. Clooney's kind of moping around leaving, leading his everyday life. And it being 2002, he's leading like a group therapy session and somebody is apparently talking about like nine 11, <laughs> uh, which struck me as really kind of discordant because it's supposedly set sometime in the future and it's not specifically said to be nine 11, but the kind of trauma that the woman in the group therapy is talking about is a 9-11 type trauma, which which struck me as just kind of like a nod to the current day that I thought was kind of lame. Anyway, he's visited by these two shadowy, like literally they are in shadows. You can't really see their face, even though one of them is like a herald from the... Yeah, it's John Cho. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they're from uh, the company. And they've decided to that they need to send a psychologist to uh, the Solaris space station and that Clooney is the best man for the job. Because in Hollywood movies, it, it can't just be like, hey, there's this psychologist I know. Can you send him out to the space station? Right. Like, he's got to be the best psychologist. Right. Because that's how things work in Hollywood. Well, speaking of Hollywood, I want before we get further into the, the setup here, um, 
you, you talk about how the opening is very Hollywood, and it is from the very first moment. You see Clooney sitting on his bed with his head in his hands, and then you hear in voiceover his dead wife's, you know, pleas, like, you know, like whatever she says, you know, some, something really trite, like, you know, I need you or something like that. And, and he's sitting there racked with guilt, and it's just... I mean, it's a sledgehammer to your skull from the opening shot of this movie, um, trying to give you this narrative shorthand that, oh, Clooney's sad, you know, and it's just, and there's, the, the, there's there is no subtlety at all to this movie. There's no elegance. Yeah, like even like the, the the visual scheme, like all of the the Earth scenes, like in the flashbacks, and there are lengthy flashbacks to Clooney and and Macalone's life before she died. They are all tinged gold, whereas all of the scenes on the space station are tinged blue. And that's, uh, you know, the, the tyranny of, of gold and teal is, is rampant throughout Hollywood for the last, you know, 15 years or so since digital intermediaries came about because those colors pop really well on, like, computer screens when people are editing. Uh, like, uh, uh, Sarah Polly's, uh, Take the Swaltz is, like, hilarious in that there's, like, orange and teal in every scene. But, uh, this Solaris is, is one of the worst examples of that. It's, like, everything is either gold or it's teal. Well, and we should note that under a pseudonym, uh, not only did, uh, Soderbergh edit this movie, uh, but he is also the cinematographer, too. Yeah. Because he's, uh, he's, he's a, a jack of all trades. He's a one-man band. That's right. Yeah. Uh, wrote, directed, produced, shot, edited. I don't think he wrote the music though. He's not. He's not a Robert. No, so it's actually a Cliff Martinez score, yeah. and that's actually the best thing about. The yeah, the music. The music was actually pretty haunting at certain certain points. Uh, it didn't always work for me, but um, but yes. Uh, so anyway, you're you're talking about like uh, the movie working as a sledgehammer, and and that is what it is. It's it's very much a a melodramatic love story. Well, I compare it on my Letterboxd review uh, to. Um, a lifetime original movie because I mean it feels pulled straight out of the pages of one of those you know soap opera ish you know heavy handed right and we talked about the various themes of, of the the previous one and and this one basically only has one theme and it's Clooney's guilt over his wife's suicide and in in this case the suicide is given more of like a clear motivation like uh, although you know just narratively it doesn't quite make sense to me. Because he apparently wants to marry her, but she isn't sure that she wants to marry him. And then she gets pregnant, and then she gets an abortion, and doesn't tell him about it. And then she tells him that she got an abortion, and then he's upset about it. And then she doesn't understand why he's upset, and then he leaves because they had a fight, and then she kills herself. Right. (laughs) There's nothing about that that makes sense to me as, like, a thing that human beings would do. Like, it seems to me like a thing that, like, a writer would write in order to get, like, a melodramatic situation. Like, to get to the point where she kills herself, obviously they have to have a fight. Right. And I don't see human beings actually actually acting that well, way. Well, but she's psychotic, right? Or was that just my reading of it? I think she's insane. I don't know. Well, Maybe. but, okay, I mean, isn't it, there that, a scene... Isn't that kind of a, a convenient way to explain away the fact that her actions don't make any sense? No, exactly. No, I'm, I'm, I, that's exactly what I'm saying. It's totally narratively convenient for that to be the case. Um... But yeah, I thought the whole time that she was just insane. 
Yeah, I mean, one one person's insane character is another person's poorly written character. Okay, sure. Yeah, uh, I, I just read. Yeah. One one thing I, I you know I did kind of appreciate that I think that Soderbergh was going for was he was trying to give us more of her point of view of the situation, whereas the the Tarkovsky version is is very much set in the point of view of the men but and that how makes... they deal with the women, and it, you know <laughs> it makes sense in the Tarkovsky version, but you know that you know that is a a potentially interesting point of inquiry to. A making a film about Solaris is what is the perspective of the alien who's trying to figure out, you know, what she is. Like, she's trying to come to an understanding of herself and to reconcile these kind of partial memories that she has because she's created out of Kelvin's memories. She doesn't have any of her own. Like, her whole consciousness is 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 based on somebody else's projection of what they think she was thinking. And, you know, that can't help but make you kind of crazy. And I, 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 you know, I think I, you know, I think that's valuable. And I think that a better actress might have made that better. And I think a, a better story, like just dramatically structured, might have done more with that. Yeah, it didn't work for me at all here. In um, in, in in the end, it ends up being uh, uh, more reminiscent of Vertigo, but like a half-assed allusion to Vertigo, where where. You know, Kelvin has created this woman that's a projection of his desires. And at, at some point, there's like a, a a line that says, this is Vertigo, where she's like, I'm not the real thing. He's like, you're good enough. Right. Uh, so yeah, I've, I've talked a lot about this. Tell, <laughs> tell me your turn to rant. My so turn to rant? my breath. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so... Uh, hey, uh, okay. Worst thing about this movie, Jeremy Davies. I'm coming out. I'm coming out swinging right now. Holy crap! I've only seen Jeremy Davies in Rescue Dawn, Werner Herzog's film, where he's playing a very similar type of character, which is the Jeremy Davies. You've seen Saving Private Ryan? No, I haven't. Well, you're such a lucky man. <laughs> uh, he's playing so in Rescue Dawn. You know, he, but Herzog uses that to his advantage. His twitchiness. Yeah, he uses that for a reason, and he and he does it well. In here, Jeremy Davies is playing space hobo, uh, crazy space hobo, and there's technically a narrative reason for the why he's so, t- you know, weird or whatever, but God, is he terrible. Yeah, and I hated that little twist. Yeah, I did too. Plot. I did too. Because that that just doesn't make any sense at all. No. Because, you know, we're talking about how, you know, the twist is, a spoiler alert, the twist <laughs> is that the Jeremy Davies that George Clooney's interacting with is actually an alien copy of Jeremy Davies right. because, like, the real Jeremy Davies, his first night there, dreamt of himself. Right. <laughs> and so the alien made a copy of himself. But in order for, like, the whole guilt theme of the, of the Solaris story that... that these people are tra- attempting to reconcile with these tragedies in their past, and that is how the alien is learning about human beings by, you know, seeing how we deal with guilt and how, you know, when we're confronted with our, you know, the worst things that we have done in our past, how we react to that. Why would the worst thing that Jeremy Davies has done in his past be Jeremy Davies? Well, because he, he's Jeremy Davies. Well, I, I would be, <laughs> if I was Jeremy Davies, I, every day of my life, I'd be like, God, I'm Jeremy Davies. This is awful. <laughs> Uh, no, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. It's it doesn't make any sense. So that that whole layer of meaning from the original film 
gone is gone by this little twist that that he's a replica all along. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just boneheaded. It's just well, and what's funny too is um, they see at the beginning of the movie when when Clooney first gets on the space station, he sees that blood on the ceiling. But he doesn't bother to investigate it at all. He's just like, oh, there's like blood coming through that panel in the ceiling. Well, okay, I'm going to go over here now. And then later in the movie, and this is the part that annoyed me about it. Like, okay, maybe, you know, you just got on the space station. You're going to inquire. Maybe everybody else knows why the blood is there. Um, But then at the end, Clooney is apparently emotionally erect. He's just completely wrecked. Um... Because um, uh, uh, Viola Davis has killed the replica of his dead wife, Rhea. And so she's gone. And he's, he's totally despondent. And he's angry. And he's pissed off at her. And he's, he's, he's uh, you know, totally despondent. Um, and he's yelling at her. And then she closes the door on him. And then he's like, hey, look at the ceiling. There's blood coming from the ceiling. Like, like if you were in that kind of emotional state of like this heightened thing why would you suddenly at that point be like hey let's go take a look at this there's no emotional continuity to the performance from scene to scene yeah with Clooney and 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 I think this is is probably the worst George Clooney performance I've ever seen and you know I haven't seen his Batman movie but I I have never disliked him more as an actor than I did in this movie and it's basically it's one note per scene so like there's a scene where he's you know turned on so he's all like charming George Clooney, and then the next scene he's very upset. So he's very upset George Clooney, yeah. and then the next scene he's very calm and rational George Clooney, and just exactly like you're saying, like he goes from from being incredibly upset to being cold and rational yeah. just in the blink of an eye. Yeah, and th- there's no sense that he's like an actual human. It's like every scene is its own little isolated thing. Yeah, it's terrible. And I don't know if that's like Soderbergh's editing or it's just the failure to create an emotionally coherent character. I'm assuming, I mean, I'm putting, I'm, I'm laying the blame with Soderbergh and I think it might be, you know, he, he's known for working ridiculously fast and I'm assuming that he just does like a couple of takes and he's like, we're good, let's go. And then he just kind of like, you know, assembles a movie like it, it's a, you know, I don't know, a car or something. <laughs> he puts it out, you know. Um, that's my, my thinking on the matter, but you, you mentioned the, the Viola Davis character and, and, uh, as much as you did not like Jeremy Davies, that's how much I did not like Viola Davis. Like, I think she as an actress is fine. I hated her character. Oh, her character's terrible. I hated everything that her character said. Her, her character's you know, awful. She's, she's playing, uh, Gordon, who is the, the analog in the, in the Tarkovsky is, is Dr. Sartorius, which is a much better name, but it sounds well, and more Dr. like Dr. Sartorius in the, in the original, I want to talk about him too. He's really interesting. Like he's 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 the guy I like the most. You know. Yeah, and he he's fascinating. We don't know much about him. Uh, we we hear like weird noises scurrying about in his lab, but we don't really know who you know the thing that has come back to torture him about his past. We don't really know what that is, and that's uh, that's a whole other thing about the subtlety of the first one. <laughs> right. It's like there's little bits that we don't know. But uh, anyway. Uh, he has a really complicated motivation because he's come up with the Annihilator, but he, you know, is driven to study, you know, the planet for, you know, for scientific reasons. And he's really torn about what to do. Like, is, is it worth it to keep, you know, risking our own sanity 
for the sake of, of science. And there's this very real conflict and, you know, that's fascinating. It never really gets resolved in the film. Viola Davis character is given like three lines for her motivation. And it's like, uh, I actually wrote them down because they're terrible. So give me a moment. Uh, her first is, uh, it's just that I want it to stop. If I can stop it, then that means I'm smarter than it is. Right. Right. And then she has the, is we don't want other worlds. We want ourselves mm-hmm. line, which doesn't really, you know, fit in coherently with the other, uh, with that other motivation of her. Uh, and then, and her, her last line about, uh, about the issue is that, uh, she wants to her, by her explanation of why she killed Clooney's wife is, uh, it's not human. And I'm threatened by that. I want humans to win. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. Well, talking about lines, you know, um, when, you know, I, I mentioned the line, you know, don't turn a scientific problem into uh, a common love story from the uh, original film. And I think the line that stuck out for me is actually very early on in the movie. Jeremy Davies says, I could tell you what's happening, but I really wouldn't tell you what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> Steven Soderbergh's Solaris. <laughs> uh, I kind of want to talk about the, the beginning. Like, you, you, you touched on, like, Clooney's first appearance where he, like, doesn't investigate the tile. Yeah. Uh, one thing that the the Tchaikovsky version with the the setup with like the film strip and and kind of setting the scene for the fact that there is a mystery on the space station. One thing that does is it lets us know that there are only three people on the space station. There's the, the right. three times scientists. There's Snout, Sartorius, and, and Javarian. So when Kelvin gets there and he's talking to 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 uh, Snout and he sees a little boy, it's really freaky. Well, a little girl and yeah, girl. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or when he's talking to Sartorius and there's like noises behind him, like, you know, there's, that only, there's somebody yeah. else there. Yeah, yeah. So you're like, where did these other people come from? Right. That's not the setup for the 2002 version. Like supposedly there was like a, a security team that was sent there and we have no idea how many scientists were actually on the right. space station. So when Clooney's walking around and he sees like a little boy, could just be a little boy. Yeah, it could just be a little boy. Like we have no reason to believe that there are no little boys there. Right. But then he chases after it like it's some huge thing. But yeah, we were never given any right. reason. So yeah. there's no you know dramatic reason why that should be suspenseful at all. And the same thing when like Viola Davis is talking to him and she doesn't want to like let him into her room, so she's talking through the door. And then you hear like the noise around her, which is the same as you heard with Sartorius. With Sartorius, it's really creepy. Like, what has he got back there? Right. With her, it's like uh, I assume it's her kids because apparently the scientists <laughs> have their kids. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, it's uh, it's bad. The 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 worst line of the movie for me is, is one of uh, of Clooney's speeches, and he he's arguing with his wife, and and he's he's got this very anguished look on his face, and he's looking up into the light, and it, and you know it's almost kind of like a, a Passion of Joan of Arc kind of pose, and and he says uh, uh, her wife, his wife basically wants to kill herself because he's like you made me suicidal because you only remember me as suicidal, so there's no point in my existing anymore. And he doesn't accept that. Like, he thinks that they can live happily ever after. He's trying to convince her that they can, like, lead this new life. And they don't have to follow the same track that they that the actual Clooney and wife were on where she ended up killing herself. And he says, I don't believe we're predetermined to relive our past. I think we can choose to do it differently. And he says, this is my chance to undo that mistake, and I need you to help me. And then she says, but am I really right? And he says, I don't know anymore. All I see is you. 
And that's and that's where it kind of becomes vertigo. But that initial phrase, I don't believe we're predetermined to relive our past, is there's like a kernel of an interesting idea there. <laughs> and I could see an interesting movie being made out of out of this idea that he's like caught in this infinite loop where he's kind of you know reliving the same relationship problems over and over again groundhog day kind of a groundhog day kind of thing where every time he and this woman get together it ends in her killing herself but that's not this movie no i actually i thought of groundhog day while i was watching this um this version i didn't think i i didn't it didn't come into my mind when i was watching the original um and, uh, well, this element isn't in the original right, at all. Right. Like he has no illusions that that she is real, right. that they can live happily ever after. He knows all the time that she is an alien, and he may choose to like take physical comfort in that because he's lonely and he misses his wife. But he knows it's an illusion all along. Clooney really believes in the illusion. And he well, really wants it to be real. Well, and um, <laughs> when I was watching it, I like you said there was there's kind of a, a, a little inkling of, a, of an interesting idea there, and I was like, "What movie does that remind me of?" There's a movie where they do something like that, and it's really cool. And then I was like, "Oh, it's Groundhog Day. That movie's awesome," you know. Um, well, to me, the dumbest thing in this movie, um, and the reason it's it's I think it's the dumbest is it takes up so much time. In this version, they show Clooney's dreams. Hmm. and Clooney's dreams apparently are just his memories like nothing like it, like when you when you dream about someone that you love or whatever sure they're there and they're, it's, but it's but it's a dreamlike version of them and weird shit happens you know you're you're both like I don't know naked on top of the Empire State Building or something something crazy is happening but in this he dreams in a linear fashion of how he met her and how they got married and they got to, or they got that, together. That was one of my, my major problems too, because because we see these dreams as as flashbacks and we see them not just from Clooney's dreams, but from uh, Natasha McElhone's point of view as she remembers their previous life and she doesn't remember it all at once. Like you would think that a fully formed you know creature, even if it's an alien manufactured creature made out of you know subatomic particles. Higgs bosons is actually yes, what they call them. Yep, they, yep, yep. Uh, you would think that that once she is created, she would have her whole lifetime's worth of memories. So when she remembers, she doesn't remember them in chronological order. Like her, the way that we experience her memories are: she is created when Clooney first sees her, and then we see the story of their relationship broken up into separate days for dramatic tension, where it you know it ends with her killing herself. If I'm an alien creature that's been, you know, created out of memories, I'm going to remember killing myself before <laughs> I remember, you know, the time that, that, you know, naked George Clooney ate ramen with chopsticks. <laughs> there, Clooney's ass is in this thing twice, uh, yeah. which I think was uh, an interesting decision um, on part. I don't know why it happened, but it happened. Um, yeah, I just don't get it. Like, it, that to me is the most... Uh, incredulous thing about this movie is it doesn't make any sense to me because it shows him the first time he's sleeping he's thinking about her or you know it shows them meeting on a train and then going to this party and stuff and then Soderbergh will cut back to Clooney sleeping so you know that he's dreaming this and first she's holding like a doorknob or something and I'm like oh this is a dream it's weird she's holding a doorknob but then it's not it's just how they met on a train and then suddenly she's there and there's nothing there's nothing weird or unsettling about it. And there's also uh, the the dreams 
you don't really see the dreams in in the first film, but there no. are there are visions, there are home movies. There's uh, he uh, Kelvin and and uh, and his wife watch uh, home movies of him as a child and of of his uh, mother. Well, there's that. That's one of my favorite parts of the original. Is he there's those uh, he's reminiscing, you know, and it's clearly him reminiscing, and it's very gorgeous and evocative, and it's it's. Dreamlike. It, it might be my favorite part of the original Solaris um, because it, it does effectively, in an abstract way, convey all of these emotions and stuff. Yeah, and that uh, that that leads us to the ending. Like in the ending of Solaris, the Tarkovsky version, we we find that that Kelvin or is actually the the Kelvin on this island in the ocean is actually a replicant Kelvin because he. He heals like he has like a cut on his arm and it just washes off. So we're kind of left up in the air. What happened to human Kelvin? Like, cause he was going to go down to the planet and attempt further contact, but we don't know if like the Island came about after that contact or if the, the Island that grew up there was just a projection of the brainwaves that he sent down in an attempt to communicate with it. We don't really know. It's, it's, it's left vague and unclear. We know exactly what happens to George Clooney here. Explicitly. He, he allows himself to fall into the planet in the hopes that he will get to, you know, that it's some kind of heaven where he gets to relive his life with his wife and change things so that they'll live happily ever after. And she tells him at the end that that's exactly what happens. She says, uh, we don't have to think like that anymore. We're together. Everything we've done is forgiven. Everything. So it's this it's this very anthropomorphized version of, of God where, where they just forgive all their sins and they live happily ever after. But he's also a replicant version of Clooney. Right. So it's kind of, it's replaying his memories, but in a more perfect state. Whereas the, the memories that we're seeing re- replayed in the Tarkovsky version are imperfect. And the last thing we see Replicant Kelvin do is, like, kneel down before his father and, like, beg his forgiveness. Yeah, well, and the way that it's handled in the Tarkovsky one, you know right away something's wrong, like you said earlier, because it's raining in the house and stuff. But it's still, he builds it uh, through editing and stuff. He builds that whole thing to that final kind of shocking shot where it shows the island on uh, Solaris or whatever. And Soderbergh, dear God, does he bungle this thing? Like he, he Clooney's at home. Or Clooney goes through a few. You know, he's he takes the train and it's raining. He's walking home and it's raining. He's at home and so it's, it's raining. It's a repeat of the shots that open the film, right? And it's raining and it's raining. Um, and then he cuts himself or whatever. And then Soderbergh, for whatever reason, flashes back to Clooney on Sol- on the space station making that decision. To, to stay with it, and then you see the space station going into the planet. And so there's no sense of, like, you know, in the original Solaris, it's kind of like a kick to the, you know, stomach or whatever. Like, oh, that's a crazy ending here. But here it's just so, like, and then this this is me telling you why this or how this happened. And it's like, right. why it's like, do you the, this need happened, to this tell happened, me? This happened. There's, no, there's no mystery. There's no mystery. Yeah. It's horrible. <laughs> And not all movies have to be mysteries. Like, it's it's perfectly okay to make a movie that is about one thing, and it's perfectly okay to make a movie that is a melodramatic love story. But 
this one doesn't work. It's like, it's a half-assed mystery and it's a half-assed love story and it leads to like a quarter-assed movie. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's just ridiculous um, and tedious and I didn't like it. <laughs> I agree, but I do like Brian Eno, so let's Yay! listen to some Brian Eno. This is off of his Apollo uh, Atmospheres and Soundtracks album and this is um, a song about weightlessness. Thanks, Brian. That's our show for this week. Uh, next week on the podcast, we're going to be celebrating Catherine Deneuve's 70th birthday by watching her in Luis Buñuel's Belle de Jour and Manuel de Oliveira's uh, sequel made much later, Belle Toujours. We'll also be talking about uh, Catherine Deneuve in general and picking our cinema essential movies where housewives become prostitutes. I can't wait. Uh, if you're in the New York area, you've got to be going to the uh, the big Jean-Luc Godard retrospective at the New York Film Festival. It's not a complete res- retrospective, but they're playing a whole lot of Jean-Luc Godard movies. Go and see them. There's a lot of the 60s stuff. There's a lot of the, the later stuff. There's shorts. There's Istoires to Cinema. Go see it all. Do it. Uh, if you're in San Francisco, uh, the lovely Castro Theater is playing a double feature on uh, Sunday, October 13th of uh, Hitchcock's Psycho and Marnie, which I think is a wonderful night at the movie theater. Yeah, that's a great pair of movies <laughs> there. Let's see. Would, do, you, do you prefer Marnie to the birds? Or do you prefer no, the birds? No, I prefer the birds. I do too. But Marnie's really... Uh, Marnie's really good. Yeah, we should talk about Marnie sometime. Anyway, uh, do we have anything else to say? Oh, you can find us on the internet at thegeorgesandersshow.blogspot.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at GeoSandersShow, and you can email us at thegeorgesandersshow at gmail.com. Uh, I think that's it, huh? Take it away. You must remember 
A kiss is just a kiss A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by And when two lovers woo They still say I love you On that you can rely No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Never out of date Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman needs man And man must have his mate That no one can deny It's still the same old story A fight for love and glory A case of do or die 